Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today's episode is a recording of a live Q&A that I did a few months ago. I talk about how to have difficult conversations, what anti-racist books I'd recommend for children, the consequences of identity politics, blackness as an identity, the overuse of racism, cultural diversity and its relationship to racial disparity, and several other topics. I'll be doing another Q&A soon, and if you're a supporter of the show, this time you'll be able to submit questions directly to me through text message. So you can find that function at colemanhughes.org. So without further ado, my live Q&A. Before we get to those questions, maybe I can just take any question from, from the comment section for those of you who, who are here. Please describe your most difficult encounter with a devout slash aggressive believer in woke ideology. Any lessons, any suggestions? I've had some privately, I've had some conversations go really terribly. I think many people have. Uh, I recall one time I, it was during the 2018 midterms, I was at uh, an election party. We just got together, had some drinks and watched the midterm election results. And at some point I mentioned that I actually hadn't voted for the midterms. I, I had just voted in the general. And there was one uh, person there who was so offended that I didn't vote that she began yelling at me, right? And what I default to in these kinds of situations is not to match their energy and uh, not, not to meet shrieking with shrieking, but to sort of calmly listen to what they have to say and try not to let their level of, of energy and their, their general vibe of attacking prompt you into combat, right? It, does, it, it takes two to make something combat. And, and what you'll often find is if you do this, at some point their level of energy is going to dissipate and they're going to prefer to just talk to you as a person, whether it takes five minutes or 10 minutes often that will happen, right? They'll, they'll come down, they'll realize the, the adrenaline will stop rushing because it's difficult to sustain if someone is truly yelling at you for your politics, right? It's, it's tough for, for a normal person to sustain that level of energy indefinitely. So if you don't match it, if you just stay calm and say what you believe to be true and listen to what they're saying, usually you can get to a point where even if it's uncomfortable, you're no longer in the position of someone like Nick Christakis at Yale being, you know, shrieked at by people who, who sort of don't have any interest in actually having a conversation. I, I thought how he handled that was actually as good as one can. But when the cameras are off and, and you're in the privacy of, uh, you know, your own home, I think it's actually possible to start 
from a horrible interaction like that, one of these sort of viral, like SJW shriek videos and actually turn it into a genuine conversation. I've had that happen as well. So, okay. So let's get to the questions I've received from you all in email form. Okay. So the first question, first question I have here with K through 12 public schools embracing Ibram X Kendi's anti-racism teachings, what are some good resources to teach youth about these issues that are more traditionally liberal minded? Are there any children's books for say 10 to 12 year olds, classics or newer ones that you might recommend to teach about these subjects? Okay, so this is a good question. Obviously, there's been an explosion of concern about critical race theory entering the classroom, K through 12 classroom in the past year in the wake of the George Floyd the death of George Floyd, you know, many K through 12 systems have responded with critical race theory, right? As if teaching black kids to meditate on their, on their so-called blackness, uh, on their, to, to nurture an identity as a victim and teaching white kids to see themselves as racist by definition. This is the program that's allegedly going to heal race relations in America and prevent the next George Floyd. At least that seems to be the attitude many people have. There are books like Anti-Racist Baby by Ibram Kendi, which is a distillation of the message I just summarized for children, for, for very young children, right? The, the notion is we, we very much like religions throughout history have, have targeted the young as uniquely impressionable and suggestible. It's sort of this third wave anti-racist movement is more and more being sold to children, whether it's in the form of a book like Anti-Racist Baby or whether it's in the form of, of a K through 12 classroom teaching the tenets of critical race theory, whether it's, whether it's a history class teaching, for instance, the 1619 Project as if it were a textbook. So what would I recommend here is what the questioner asks, well, I have a few scattered suggestions. One is to look into an organization called FAIR, which I'm on the advisory board of FAIR. I'm I'm not really directly involved with what what they do, but it's it's started by uh, Bayan Bartning and uh, my friend Barry Weiss brought me in on the advisory board there. And they're basically trying to challenge the encroach of critical race theory in the K through 12 curriculum. And I think they're doing a very good job. They're essentially the anti-woke ACLU. You can think of them that way. So, so it's, it's called FAIR. It's a foundation against intolerance and racism. And I highly recommend following their work. As far as are there children's books, I can recommend that teach an attitude towards race that's more traditionally liberal minded. That, that's a tough one. You know, one that comes to mind is actually a book by Kristen Bell, the, the actor from The Good Place and a few other, uh, and I think, I think a Broadway singer as well. She wrote a children's book called The World Needs More Purple People. And the message of this book was that in a world filled with blues and reds, we need more people that are willing to understand 
both sides. Blue plus red equals purple. That was the analogy of the book. And it's, I, I think it's essentially an analogy for bridging the political divide between groups. Obviously, it's a kid's book, so it's, it's not, doesn't talk explicitly about politics or race. But the overall vibe was one of seeing what we have in common rather than what divides us. Ironically enough, her publishing this book was divisive because she got accused of promoting colorblindness and had to apologize for essentially trying to write a children's book that taught us all to be better to each other, right? Because the notion was, if you're talking about purple people, you must be making some glib point about how I don't care if you're black, white, or purple. So ironically, our society is so divisive that a book for children with the least divisive message ever proved divisive. But that's, that's the kind of book I might want to read to my kids if I had kids. And that's a little bit younger than 10 to 12 years old. And then there's, there's another book I, I've recommended in a previous Q&A. This would be for, for adolescents or, or adults. This is called Race and Liberty in America. Highly recommend it. It's just a, a compendium of writings over the past 200 years in the classical liberal tradition on the topic of race. So you have, you know, people like Frederick Douglass in there as well, but a lot of lesser known figures that many of whom don't get taught in history classrooms, but who nevertheless wrote on the topic of race from a classical liberal perspective. Uh, So I, I highly recommend that. Okay, next question. Taking into consideration the evolving connotation of white supremacy by those leveling it as an accusation and demanding its end, what do you perceive to be the proverbial finish line here? Where is this all headed? Okay. So the gist of this question is with the heightened concern about white supremacy and the constant leveling of, of this accusation, you know, where does this all head in the long run? So I can think of three, three main consequences of the overuse of the concept of white supremacy. One of the most concerning to me is the reemergence of a white identity, right? The, the, re, the reemergence of a felt sense of pride on the part of white people in being white as a function of being so often attacked for this characteristic that you have no control over. If you think about how black pride emerged, why is it that when, when polled, you'll find something like 70% of black people saying that they feel to some extent pride in blackness, right? Where did this come from? Well, well obviously part of why this is so attractive to many black people is because of several hundred years of being told that blackness is synonymous with ugliness and stupidity and, and inferiority, right? When you're attacked for something that you have no control over, the most natural human response is, is to reject your attackers and to take pride in the very thing that they're attacking you for. Again, this is just a contingent fact about you that you have no control over. So to the extent that we are just making it totally okay in the culture to attack white people for being white, the natural response is going to be for white people to take pride in whiteness, 
right? And to organize around whiteness as a political and social variable to a greater extent than, than already exists. And I, I don't see why that is a road worth going down, right? So that's one consequence of the, of the constant drumbeat of concern about white supremacy. Another consequence is the destruction of systems that are there for a reason, because they work, right? We, we make white supremacy synonymous with things like proactive and well-funded policing, standardized testing. And to the extent that white supremacy comes to be seen as synonymous with these systems, those systems are going to go away. We've already seen isolated examples of the police being defunded in a place like Minneapolis or the police simply no longer existing in certain zones of certain cities like uh, Seattle. And, you know, inevitably these things are temporary because the backlash from the people affected by such policies is generally swift and so obviously not a function of racism, right? In the case of Minneapolis, you have black residents of Minneapolis saying, where the hell did the police go? And suing the city uh, um, as, as, as crime surges, right? So what you're going to see is, is the hopefully temporary destruction of systems that, that are there because they work. And then ultimately, I would say the third thing I, I do worry about is just the phenomenon of reverse discrimination being normalized. This may seem like a crazy thing to worry about for, for some people, but I think we are already seeing this happen. The, the mayor of Oakland, I read in the Associated Press the other day, is giving poor families of color in Oakland $500, poor defined as something like below $60,000 a year. So he's giving poor families of color $500, but poor white families nothing. Right? That is a fundamentally morally confused policy. It's a policy that if I were a poor white person, I would be justified in feeling that that was just a slap in my face, right? Because you're punishing someone for something they have no control over. You're punishing someone for their race. And, you know, you can justify this based on some confused notion of balancing the scales of history as if giving you know, b- poor black families in Oakland, $500, but not poor white families, $500, is somehow making up for the fact that the great-grandfather of someone in the black family was dealt a shittier hand than the great-grandfather in one of the white families. Of course, th- this is a totally abstract kind of justice, right? You're punishing concrete people alive today over general patterns that were true hundreds of years ago, right? You don't know the particular story of any, any particular person. You're just making a blanket assumption, a stereotype, frankly, and basing policy on that, right? And th- this is happening, right? So it's not a theoretical concern, but it is the logical endpoint of the anti-racist movement. It's simply to, simply to reverse the valence on 
what racial discrimination has typically been throughout uh, American history. And there's an alternative, which is colorblind policy, right? If we determine it makes sense to give poor families $500 right now, if, that, if that's a wise policy, simply do it without regard to race. It's so simple. The ethics should be so simple here, but apparently they are not for, from the point of view of the mayor of Oakland and many others. How can we separate the identity black from the racial classification black? so that we can move forward with colorblindness without this painful loss of identity, right? So the question here is, on the one hand, there's just black as a kind of neutral descriptor, racial descriptor, uh, black in the sense that I would call myself black. And then there's the notion, there's a sense of the word black where it's, it's, it's freighted with all kinds of other associations. Uh, when people talk about what their blackness means to them, when uh, DeRay McKesson on Twitter, you know, almost every week tweets, I love my blackness and yours. He means something more than the strict racial classification. He means some kind of deeper sense of identity. And I, I, I had Desiree Campbell on my podcast recently to discuss this as well. Um, I'm not sure if that has actually, that, that should be released next week. But we talk at length about you know, these two different senses of the word black. And ultimately, what's important to realize here is this is a point about pride and shame and individuality. What does it make sense to take pride in in life? And what does it make sense to be ashamed of? Pride and shame have a logic, right? If I develop a skill, it makes sense to feel pride at the end of that path because it's a kind of emotional incentive to keep doing the thing I feel pride about. In the same way, shame, the logic of shame is that uh, I'm almost punishing myself internally for having done a bad thing and thus making me less likely to do those kinds of things in the future, right? Pride and shame, they're, they're, it's the carrot and stick of, of your own emotional landscape. But what are you celebrating when you have pride in your race, right? What achievement? Are you celebrating here? There's nothing, there's no beha- more behavior to cultivate, uh, and th- nor is there anything to be ashamed of, right? It's just a category error to feel pride in something you have no control over. That's not what pride and shame properly construed are for. At least that's the way it seems to me. I'm actually going to read uh, on this topic, I'm going to read Zora Neale Hurston, her autobiography, Dust Tracks on the Road, which was written in 1942, I think got this completely right. And it's, it's worth reading somewhat long ex- excerpt from it. So this is, this is Zora Neale Hurston in 1942. There could be something wrong with me because I see Negroes neither better nor worse than any other race. Race pride is a luxury I cannot afford. There are too many implications behind the term. Now suppose a Negro does something really magnificent, and I glory not in the benefit to mankind, but in the fact that the doer was a Negro. Must I not also go hang my head in shame when a member of my race does something execrable? If I glory, then the obligation is laid upon me to blush also. I do glory when a Negro does something fine. Sorry, if I do glory when a Negro does something fine, I gloat because he or she has done a fine thing, but not because he is a Negro. That's incidental and accidental. 
It is the human achievement which I honor. I execrate a foul act of a Negro, but again, not on the grounds that the doer was a Negro, but because it was foul. A member of my race just happened to be the fowler of humanity in that case. In other words, I know I cannot accept responsibility for 13 million people. Every tub must sit on its own bottom regardless. So race pride in me had to go. And anyway, why should I be proud to be a Negro? Why should anyone be proud to be white or yellow or red? After all, the word race is a loose classification of physical characteristics. It tells us nothing about the insides of people. Pointing at achievements tells nothing either. Races have never done anything. What seems race achievement is the work of individuals. The white race did not go into a laboratory and invent incandescent light. That was Edison. The Jews did not work out relativity. That was Einstein. The Negroes did not find out the inner secrets of peanuts and sweet potatoes, nor the secret of the development of the egg. That was Carver and Just. If you're under the impression that every white man is an Edison, just look around a bit. If you have the idea that every Negro is a Carver, you'd better take off plenty of time to do your searching. No, instead of race pride being a virtue, it is a sapping vice. It has caused more suffering in the world than religious opinion. And that is saying a lot. Okay, so that's Zora Neale Hurston from her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road. And that's just so good. I think it really hits the nail on the head in terms of why race pride and shame, for that matter, makes no sense. Brilliant is a website and app that teaches you how to think and solve problems with fun, interactive lessons in STEM. With Brilliant's hands-on approach, you'll learn by doing instead of listening to lectures. It's a better and more fun way to learn. All of Brilliant's courses have storytelling, code writing, interactive challenges, and problems to solve. Brilliant offers many well-curated sequences of problems that help you master all sorts of technical subjects. If you're interested in physics, you can try out their courses on classical mechanics and gravitational physics. If you like computers and coding, you can check out their courses on CompSci Fundamentals and Programming with Python. Brilliant has a vast array of courses that can help you achieve your goals in STEM, starting with one small commitment to learning and building up to long-term challenge and growth. To check out the many courses available and find the one that's right for you, you can go to brilliant.org CWC and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to this link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Once again, that's brilliant.org CWC. Okay, let's go to the next question. Terms defining damnable behaviors such as racist, misogynist, or fascist, used by the left, or communist, anarchist, and evil, used by the right, with plenty of blurring between them, are thrown around like hand grenades today. Do you think this causes them to lose their meaning? And if so, is there an appropriate way to counter their overuse without defending those truly espousing such beliefs? Yeah, so, so the boy who cried wolf makes a profound and simple point on this topic, which is that people temper their reactions to words based on their prior experiences, both with the word and with the person speaking the word. It's a very simple point, but it's a profound one. And what it implies is that 
the more times you hear a word like racist or misogynist or fascist or communist or anarchist, the more you hear any one of these words used in a context where they're referring to a person who you know not to be a racist or misogynist or communist, it, it actually changes inevitably how you hear the word the next time you hear it. That's the point behind The Boy Who Cried Wolf. I can remember being 10 or 11 years old. And if I heard someone refer to as a racist, this is probably in 2008, really before the Great Awakening. If I hear someone referred to as a racist, my instinct is to assume they're probably a racist because I've, I had just rarely heard that word used to describe someone in a case where it didn't end up being true. It wasn't thrown around. But over the course of the past 10 years, I've heard the word racist in particular, but, but all of these words, including the, the right-wing epithets like communist and anarchist, I've heard them used so frequently that it's now my instinct to be skeptical when I hear someone called one of these things. In other words, my experience has retrained my int- intuitions to be skeptical towards hearing anyone accused of these things. And I think that's dangerous for, for a few reasons. One, because it, it actually dulls your own emotional reaction to hearing that word, right? Ideally, we want the reaction to the word racist or misogynist to be similar to the reaction to the word pedophile, right? Pedophile is, is I think, still a word that doesn't get thrown around so often that it means nothing. It, it, it means something. It's not something that, just, that people just throw around, right? So if someone is called a pedophile, I want to live in a culture where that word is only used where it should be used so that I can take it seriously and have the proper emotional reaction of disgust when I hear that someone is a pedophile, right? That's the dynamic that should exist with these words racist and misogynist and fascist. That that you want to live in a society where you're having the appropriate reaction of disgust and disdain for people who are actually those things, right? These are there there are people that are racists and misogynists in the in the true sense of the word. The vast majority of people aren't. So one of the consequences is that I think we begin to lose touch with the proper emotional reaction towards the thing itself, right? Towards racism and misogyny. That, that's one consequence of overusing these words. And again, all of this is, is, is contained in The Boy Who Cried Wolf. It's, it's not a complicated dynamic to understand. It's something children can understand. But the, the appropriate way to counter the overuse is to simply to not participate in it yourself to begin with. And then secondly, to just point out the consequences of their overuse, right? Notice the consequences of their overuse in your own psychology and know how to talk about the consequences of their overuse. I think it's a good thing we have the boy who cried wolf as a cultural meme to refer to on this conversation because almost no one would deny that that's a real phenomenon. It's just, you know, if, if you push them on it, it's just a matter of whether they're actually 
in touch with the consequences this is creating for conversations in our country right now. All right, next question. To what degree, if any, do you believe that the actions of other groups in a society can influence the culture of another group? So do I think it's possible for the culture of a group to be influenced from the outside? That's the question. I think, you know, everyone would acknowledge that a culture can change from the inside. The question is, can it change from the outside? That's, that's this question. So obviously, yes, it's possible for one group of people to forcibly change another, the, the culture of another group. And the word for that is colonialism. You know, the history of colonialism contains countless examples of cultures being changed by force. No doubt the British influenced and changed countless other cultures. But one of the lessons, I think, of that history is, is that many attempts, forceful or not, to change another culture can either backfire or, or just produce unintended changes. A culture isn't like a car that can be tinkered with by an expert. It's, it's much more like a dynamic ecosystem in which any attempt to engineer a change will likely produce consequences that nobody intended and that nobody understands. So it's much more like trying to terraform a planet or something like that. On some level, you know, a culture changing is as simple as people agreeing it should change. But obviously the devil is in the actual execution. How does that, how does that actually happen? Is a very difficult question. Uh, okay, second part to this question here. More concretely, would you agree that the historical mistreatment of blacks in America by other groups, in conjunction with Americans predominantly valuing financial success and material possessions, may have contributed in any way to the cultural lag in education in the black community? So, as I said in my recent response to criticism video, it's totally... The idea that culture contributes to racial disparity is totally compatible with the idea that culture is a product of historical mistreatment, right? So where could your culture come from if not from the sum total of your group's past experiences? Where else could a culture come from? That, that's the only possible source. And in the case of black Americans, the sum total of our past experiences includes a lot of, a, a lot of oppression in, in various forms, obviously slavery being the most salient example. So if culture doesn't come from the sum total of those experiences, I'm not sure where it could come from. But many people seem, you know, when I talk about cultural values in the black community that if changed would lead to a narrowing of racial gaps. When I, when I talk about that, often some people will acknowledge there's some truth there, but then as a rebuttal, cite the historical mistreatment of, of blacks in America. And the point I'm making here is that these two things are not mutually exclusive. It's, it's perfectly possible that negative cultural patterns and behavior patterns in the black community are a product of that history. And even if they are, 
that really gets us no closer to an answer about how to change. So it, it seems to me to, to miss, miss the point to cite the historical mistreatment of African-Americans as, as an explanation for certain behavior patterns. All right. Next question. This is from, this is Guy from, from Nottingham, England. What do you make of the Democrats' big push for equity? Why do so many on the left deem equity preferable to the existing notion of meritocracy? So I think this goes back to the last question as well. The reason that people, I think the deep reason that people prefer equity to meritocracy is because it's so uncomfortable for many people to acknowledge that cultural differences alone can and do lead to different statistical outcomes for groups. Glenn Lowry made this point recently in in a way that I thought was very compelling. He said, right now, many people on the left want to insist on two things at once. They want to insist on the one hand that every ethnic group has its own distinct character and identity, that black people in particular have a distinct character and a distinct culture that ought to be asserted and not simply melted into the wider American identity. So on the one hand, they want to emphasize the distinction, but on the other hand, they want to say that nothing about that cultural distinctness could possibly lead to a disparity, right? It's the, the insistence that cultures are different and cultures matter, but cultural differences could not possibly matter enough to create disparities in education or socioeconomics or so forth. Right? This, is a to- this is a totally schizophrenic set of opinions here, right? If you agree that culture matters, if you recoil at the people who think 100% of life is determined by genetics, right? In other words, if you think culture is a, is a major component of, of why people become who they are, and if you agree that there are differences between cultures, if you think the word multicultural means anything at all, and if you think that the cultural differences go deeper than just the kind of cuisine you eat, then you have to agree that cultural differences matter, right? Culture matters, and there are cultural differences. So those cultural differences must, must matter, right? And, and, and they must matter enough to be able to account for many of the disparities we see in this world, right? In, in my recent episode uh, responding to criticism, I, I just cited the example of chess achievement. There's some, I forget exactly the, the statistic, but the, the dominance of Russians and Eastern Europeans at the game of chess in the 20th century is, it completely departs from what you would expect based on their numbers alone. The dominance of Indian Americans in spelling bees, right? How, how does one explain this? Is, is, it, is it all genetic? Well, it seems very unlikely, right? Why, why is it that the, the Russians were crushing it at chess in the 20th century? But if, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Japan has produced like a single digit number of, of chess grandmasters, right? 
I don't think this is as this is a matter of genes. I think this is clearly a matter of what cultures value and how how those values lead to behaviors of of you know, training a particular skill. And this applies this doesn't only apply to, to rarefied skill sets like chess. This applies to the skill sets that we define as basic, like reading and writing and building businesses on all the skills required for entrepreneurship. We, might, we may define these skills as basic, but they are no less susceptible to cultural influence than playing chess. So the point here is it's so uncomfortable for people to acknowledge that culture by itself can lead to disparities that they want to just get rid of the whole thing and say, just, just create equality by force and, and by discrimination, right? So that they no longer have to deal with the reality of disparity in the world and the uncomfortable acknowledgement that a large amount of it is simply the product of cultural differences. Cultural differences that it's, it's very difficult to, to engineer away from the outside. Okay, next question. What are my thoughts on the reported rise of attacks on Asian Americans and the difference in language used in reporting the incidents in the media? So obviously, I'm sure all of you are aware there has been a frenzy recently about the reported rise of attacks on Asian Americans from 2020 to 2021. And there are, there are many, there's been lots of dishonesty in how the story has been reported. So if I recall, I believe in, in New York city, the number was three hate crimes against Asians in 2020 and something like 28 in, in 2021. Those were the numbers I I last saw. Um, Those could, this could be different now, but there's a few things to just notice here. One is not everything that's a hate crime is a violent hate crime. And I've seen many media outlets sort of let the reader come to the assumption that 28 hate crimes means, means 28 people being attacked. And, and in many cases, this could be, it could be somebody spray canning a wall um, with, with some racial slur. There's another question of how many, the blanket term Asian is very misleading as well. Right. I think the, the, the idea many people seem to have is that this is a result of blaming Asians for COVID. Um, and, and in general, a result of the right-wing fear-mongering about China. That's, the, that's at least how I've heard some people talk about this phenomenon. And, you know, but when you see, the, you know, reporting on Asian-American hate crimes, there's nothing to tell whether any particular person is East Asian or South Asian, whether we're talking about an Indian person or a Chinese person or, or Pacific Islander. You know, these are, the whole thing is a bit strange and the way it's been reported has been less than honest. It's been reported so as to maximize the notion 
that East Asian Americans are under threat in general. And, and it's, it's been reported in general without any kind of wider caveat about how unlikely it is for any particular Asian person to be the victim of a hate crime here, right? If you're talking about a rise from three to 28, well, sure, you can describe that as an 850% fold increase. And if that's your headline, that will get lots of clicks. But it should be acknowledged that this is all a, a lightning strike level probability to begin with. And it's irresponsible of media outlets to persuade Asian Americans in general to be afraid when they leave their house when the likelihood that you are going to be victimized in any way is, is truly infinitesimal. And this game has been being played with hate crimes against black people for a very long time. And it's also been played with the likelihood of a black person getting killed by the police, which I've talked about many times in the past. So there really is just a playbook on how to lie with numbers and without technically lying so as to maximize clickbait, essentially. This is all the results of the clickbait economy, incentivizing journalists to frame things in the most salacious way possible. When in reality, you are just so much more likely, the likelihood that if you're an Asian in New York, if, if you're to get mugged, you're so much more likely to get mugged the standard way than you are for being an Asian in particular, right? And, and so I think the media just has to begin to be more honest about these kinds of phenomenon. And consumers have to become more informed about how to consume news on a sensationalized story. So I'll leave that there. Go on to the next question. Okay, this will be the last question. When the news is a constant stream of articles designed to elicit the maximum negative emotional response from us, monetizing our fear, anger, and distrust, what gives you hope of positive change? Okay, questioner goes on. You were called presumptive while being booed in front of a government subcommittee 18 months ago, but clearly did not cease engaging with the media and those you disagreed with. How do you find the strength to be curious, even argumentative, but not fearful or hateful? Well, what I will say is that every successful conversation I have in real life gives me hope. Because, you know, one thing to notice, especially in, in the time of lockdown, is how easy it is to be manipulated by what's going on on social media and how disconnected the ecosystem of social media is from the real world. Social media is not a map of the real world, but it claims to be. And it's very easy to be taken in by the illusion that it is a map of the real world, that you're just getting a window onto the world when you open up Twitter or Facebook or the news. These things are not a window onto the world, right? Or if they are, they're, they're a window, it's a, it's a funhouse mirror onto the world. And 
And so I, every successful conversation I have with a real person that, that, that I actually talk to off of social media gives me hope. Every email I get from my supporters, from, from you all, relaying me your personal experiences uh, with the topics I'm engaging with, your conversations with your friends, your spouses, and so forth. Every one of those gives me hope as well because it lets me know that I'm not talking into the void here, that there is certainly a, there, there is a, an audience of people that are trying to have good faith conversations about difficult topics. So I'm, I'm heartened by the support that, that you've all given me. And that helps me to remain strong and curious rather than fearful and hateful. So I will leave it at that. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in and for supporting. And I hope to do this again soon. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.